Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Psalm 15. And uh, I have to somewhat call, uh, not tonight, but just uh, uh, call an audible. Um, I was originally, um, this section of the Psalms, I was originally thinking of um, going to Psalm 16 and then starting another book, but just the way my schedule works out, um, I don't want to uh, start a new book um, before I uh, go away uh, for almost uh, a week to uh, Shepherd's Conference. So I'll start, um, I'm going to start Daniel when I come back. We'll be going through the book of Daniel. So with, with that, it means uh, we'll do a couple more psalms over the next few weeks. I think I'll go to Psalm 18. Um, tonight we're in Psalm 15. And uh, so read along with me. Psalm 15. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain, he who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. By your word we may know you, but also by your word we may know uh, about this world, about creation, about ourselves, about all the most important issues of life. And we can learn to live a life that is pleasing to you. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this evening and we look at this particular psalm in these words, Help us to understand them. Help us to receive them with gladness and to apply them to our lives, to grow in our faith and in Christ-likeness. Please guide me as I preach your word and speak through me for the benefit of your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we go through life, um, <clears throat> we think of our own lives and our own circumstances, we think of others, um, it's clear that um, we all have problems. And uh, we may not always be experiencing problems, but we know that we all have problems. And those problems raise questions. When we especially face a significant problem, that raises questions, questions concerning how we're to go about solving those problems. And this psalm begins with questions. Two questions. Uh, two questions um, to the greatest of problems. Two questions concerning ultimate issues of mankind, of human beings, of life. The issue of worship and how one can enter into the presence of God and 
more than that, have a right relationship with God. As David begins his psalm, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain? He begins with that main question of life, um, whether uh, any of us here or have uh, considered that. David considers that, and then he answers that question. And so here in this psalm, he addresses this question, this problem, this ultimate issue concerning mankind, the most important issue human beings have had to face ever since the fall of Adam in the garden, the issue of how a sinful human being can have a right and good relationship with the holy and perfect God of all creation. And so as we look at this psalm, we will look at it in three parts concerning this issue. First, the issue raised. Second, the issue answered. And third and finally, the issue settled. So first we see in David's question, his two questions as he begins this psalm, the issue raised. He, He raises this issue and he may be thinking about himself. He may be thinking about others around him. He may be thinking about Israel or uh, the nations. But he raises this question to God, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain? And in a sense, he's saying, who may approach God in worship and who may dwell in God's presence? Who may sojourn with him? There's a ask in your tent, or um, you may have in your translation tabernacle. It's probably most likely tent, um, but it uh, is pointing at the tabernacle, as in David's time. David did not build the temple, and um, he wanted to, but at that point, ever since the Israelites had um, come out, been redeemed out of Egypt, and, and as Moses was given instructions uh, concerning the tabernacle. He was to, in a sense, uh, build this tabernacle, which is really a tent, uh, to uh, as a place of worship. In these two terms, uh, tent or tabernacle, they're all no, they're almost synonymous. Uh, a tent is is literally just that um, a big old tent, and that's what the tabernacle was. It was a big old tent, but tabernacle, the word for tabernacle, is, is literally a dwelling place. And so the tabernacle may have more specifically been the, um, the cedar sides, so to speak, and the, the, where the actual uh, uh, dwelling place or the um, place of worship was in the holies and the, the holy of holies. And then the tent may even uh, refer to that, that top overcovering, but um, nonetheless, uh, it, it's almost synonymous, tent or tabernacle. And David is raising this question, who, who may enter in and uh, sojourn and reside and live and, uh, and uh, go into God's presence? In their... Uh, Commentary on how to read and understand the Psalms. Waltke and Zaspel, uh, Bruce Waltke and Fred Zaspel, they uh, say this. They say, though God in his grace had made Israel his own people, it was made clear from the beginning that he is holy. 
and that the privilege of entering his presence must not be presumed. And this began ever since uh, Mount Horeb, and when he, uh, in a sense, uh, uh, manifested himself uh, on the mountain in the the fiery cloud, the, the thunder, and the lightning, and the fire, and, and the people trembled. And he even told Moses, no one may approach this mountain, and only Moses could go up on the mountain. And then that was where he gave him instructions concerning worship and how they were to approach God with fear and trembling and the whole Old Testament sacrificial system that in approaching God to worship him, there was uh, sacrifices had to be made. And David understands this. But he still um, presents the, the question. He still raises the question or the issue of who may come into his presence, who may approach God in worship, who may come into the Holy of Holies, so to speak. And even as we read through Leviticus and, and um, that there's this whole, uh, there's all these uh, regulations, these statutes, these laws. And, and even for the high priest who is only allowed to go in uh, once a year to offer uh, a sacrifice, to uh, go into the Holy of Holies, there's this sense of... of uh, Distance or fear and trembling of uh, uh, of coming before a holy and righteous God as a sinful human being, but there's also a, a sense in, in David's mind that this is where you go to meet God. This is the one place you go to his tent, to his tabernacle, and, and this is still we we can see this. Um, even in uh, the, the Jews, um, and you may see pictures of the Jews at the Wailing Wall, where uh, though they have uh, rejected their Messiah, they still have a sense of this is a place to go to meet with God. And, and so much so, there, there, there's a sense of, uh, of holiness and and. and and coming to him, that uh, they had um, somewhat of a reverence for that place, for that that holy of holies. And, and if you uh, go there, you understand that um, it's not that only that they go to the wall, but they try to go as far as they can to where the temple was, to where the Holy of Holies was, so much so that there is actually a tunnel under, to the side underneath, and they can try to go as close as they can where the Holy of Holies was. The sense of coming closer to God. But they, they, they misunderstand even the, the, their, their own uh, scriptures concerning the sacrificial system and that those sacrifices pointed to a perfect sacrifice. And that it was only through that perfect sacrifice that someone can enter into his presence, can, can approach God in worship. David raises this issue of worship, of who may approach God, but also not just approach God, but who may dwell 
in God's presence. Who may approach God and worship and who may dwell in God's presence. Not, not just to come to him and sojourn momentarily, but to, uh, to reside with him, to dwell with him, to live with him in his presence. And he, he says this, uh, he uses this phrase, your holy mountain. And for most of us, we can uh, uh, allude to the fact that he is referring to Mount Zion. Who, who may dwell upon Mount Zion where God is? Who may come up and, and come up to that point, uh, Jerusalem? But it's not just that, that mountain and even that mount where the, the tabernacle would eventually go to in the, te- in the, the, the um the temple, rather, would eventually be built. It's not just that, but there's a sense of, throughout the whole uh, Bible, there's a sense of, of uh, one going up to the mountain. And primarily, we think of Mount Zion, but there's also uh, a, a second mountain that is uh, referenced a couple times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, where Moses went up. And even Elijah, in his time of depression, would return there to Mount Horeb to seek God. And God would even ask Elijah, what are, what are you doing here? He, he, he wanted to come to God, come to a place where, where God is. David asked this question. And then later on in the Bible, we would... We would uh, find that in the Gospels, we see that Jesus ascends up to a mountain to reveal himself to his disciples in his transfiguration. Later, we read uh, concerning uh, the millennial kingdom that, that Jerusalem will be the highest point on earth in the new earth and, and, and even in the, the, the uh, new creation. There's a sense of the mountain going up to see God. But also, uh, there's this concept of or, or this principle that we um, see in the beginning of the Bible. It, 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 many people don't see this, but as we read in the creation account, and we read that in Eden, that rivers flowed out of Eden, which means that Eden was at a high point. It was on a mountain, holy mountain, Garden of Eden. And what's interesting in studying this and thinking about the, this issue of uh, sojourning with God, of worshiping God, of approaching God in worship, of dwelling upon his holy mountain, of coming into his presence, there is a sense where not only does David understand this issue, that's why he raises the question of who may dwell on your holy mountain, who may sojourn in your tent, how can sinful man be made right and have a right relationship with God, there's a, there's a sense where he understands it, and many of uh, the the people around him, many of the righteous Jews, would understand that, and uh, uh, many religious people throughout the ages understand that. But there's also a sense that 
many unbelievers inherently understand that. As I have said before, and I've, I've really heard it from other preachers, that um, if you don't believe the Bible, believe the news, that there is something broken with this world. There's something wrong with this world, something that, is, that needs to be fixed, that needs to be restored. And, and I saw this in a, a song that came from, it's probably one of the... Um, theme songs of the, the 60s, and uh, it's just there, and sometimes you see this in pop culture, that, that a truth just comes out. In this song, it says, well, I came upon a child of God, he was walking along the road, and I asked him, tell me, where are you going? This he told me, he said, I'm going down to Yasgur's farm, going to join in a rock and roll band, got to get back to the land and set my soul free. And then the chorus, we are stardust, we are golden, we are billion-year-old carbon. And then this line, I don't know how this line got in there or what they were thinking, and we got to get ourselves back to the garden. But what's interesting is, is how the song ends with that chorus that it's even a little bit different. It says, we are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in the devil's bargain. What happened to the billion-year-old carbon? The billion-year-old, if that were the case, then why would we have to get ourselves back to the garden? Everyone knows there's an issue with the world that needs to be fixed, and there's an issue with mankind that needs to be resolved, and that issue is sin and a broken relationship with God in the, the sense that we need to restore that what was broken and, and, and restore that relationship and uh, be able to come back to God. And so David begins this psalm by raising that issue of this broken relationship of the sin nature of mankind and the holiness of God. And he raises that issue and then he spends the rest of this psalm answering the issue. So we see the issue raised and then the issue answered. Verses 2 to 5. Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And then he'll go on, he'll list all these, these characteristics, these attributes concerning the one that may sojourn in God's tent, that may dwell on his holy mountain, that may approach God and worship and may uh, dwell in God's presence. The issue is answered in, first, how one lives, second, how one speaks, and third, how one interacts, and fourth, how one deals. First, how one lives, uh, in a sense, their character. He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. This is someone who has a blameless character, a, a righteous character. He walks blamelessly. And just as this psalm is, is getting at the point of worship, it's, it's pointing back to Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is the one that may approach God in worship, that may dwell on his holy mountain. And just as uh, 
Psalm 15 raises this issue and tries to answer it. Psalm 1 is placed at the beginning of the Psalter as a, a me, means to say who may enter into God's presence, who may worship God, the blessed man, who is righteous, who is blameless. He walks blamelessly, but he also has integrity. He speaks truth in his heart. That, that what comes out of his mouth is, is the same as what's in his heart. His life matches what's in his heart. And this is what Jesus was getting at when, in, in the Gospels, that, that he is talking about um, the issues of the heart. He's exposing the self-righteousness and external uh, uh, hypocrisy and, and external religiosity of the Jews that all their religion is just external. And they're, they're confronting him about his disciples eating with unwashed hands and, and defiling themselves. And he says this in Matthew 15 and verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer? But the things that proceed out of the mouth, they come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, and slanders. But David says that the, the one who can sojourn in God's tent, who can dwell on his holy mountain, he speaks truth in his heart. It, it's all uh, the same. It, it, it's a, a person of integrity, of righteousness, of blamelessness, but not just externally or not just what comes out of his mouth, but what's in his heart. And so he answers this issue first by how one lives in their character, and then second, how one speaks their words. Verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. person who may dwell with God, may sojourn in his tent, he, he does not slander. Or as even Jesus would uh, get to the the heart of the issue, that he does not murder his neighbor. That's really what, what Jesus, what he was getting at when, in, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he, he is, is getting to the, the spirit of the law, the spirit of, uh, of um, the Old Testament law and the, the commandments. Matthew 5, verse 21, he says this, You have heard that the, the ancients were told, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be guilty before the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, an insult, a Jewish insult, shall be guilty before the Sanhedrin, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He's guilty because he's, in a sense, murdering his neighbor in his heart. Maybe not physically, maybe not externally, but that's where his heart is. That's the condition of his heart. And his mouth indicates that. He slanders with his tongue. But David is saying, the one who may sojourn in Yahweh's tent may dwell in his holy mountain. He does not slander with his tongue nor in his heart. He does not uh, do evil to his neighbor. He does not 
gossip. He does not take up a reproach against his friends. He doesn't listen to nor affirm gossip and slander against his friends either. You know, it's one thing not to slander somebody, not to gossip about them, which in a sense is, you know, most of us are guilty of or have been guilty of in the past. The sins of the tongue, gossiping about somebody or slandering somebody when they're not around. And it's one thing to guard your heart and to uh, not to commit that sin and to watch your mouth um, and not slander somebody and not gossip about somebody. But to take it a step further, as David does here, he doesn't take up a reproach against his friend, either uh, reproaching his friend or receiving a reproach against his friend, listening to a reproach against his friend. He doesn't listen to gossip or slander either. He separates himself from gossip and slander, and when he hears it, he defends his friends against their accusers. He confronts the gossip and slander, and he says, no, no, that's not true. I, I, I won't listen to it. I, I'm not going to hang around with people who gossip and slander, who do evil to their neighbor. As Psalm 1 says, he, he does not walk in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. He separates himself from those who would sin with their tongues, who have evil hearts. So David, he answers this issue by how one lives, second, by how one speaks in their words, and third, by how one interacts or their relationships. Verse 4. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He gets to how one interacts with others, their relationships. That the one who is righteous and blameless and is, um, in a sense, holy enough, uh, has the character that they may sojourn in God's tent and may dwell in his holy mountain. That, that person, he despises uh, reprobates and apostates, those who hate God, who have turned away from God, who despise God. And so he despises those who despise God. But also he uh, also honors the God-fearing man or woman. He honors those who fear Yahweh. And this is you know, a term that has gone out of our uh, culture we don't hear it that often. We don't hear it that often even in church of the God-fearing man or the God-fearing woman. And we should hear it. But this is as Psalm 1 once again says, He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He separates himself. And he, because he does not relate with those Evil people, he relates with the God-fearers, and he honors those who fear Yahweh. But third, he, in his relationships, the way he interacts, he is willing to even suffer hardship and even persecution for the sake of the truth. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. In a sense, this is that situation where um, 
many of us have faced this, in, usually in the workplace or maybe in school where um, you're confronted with a choice. Either I can uh, budge on the truth a little bit, I can lie, and I can, in a sense, uh, save my own skin or, or, or uh, uh, work things out so that I will uh, have a more favorable position or circumstance, or the circumstance is, is such that if I tell the truth, then it's going to really hurt me, and it's going to go against me. And I'm going to stand out from the crowd. I'm going to stand out from my coworkers or even my boss who is asking me to maybe uh, fudge on the numbers a little bit or, you know, hold, hold back on sending that, uh, that email or that receipt or, or whatever it may be. There's been situations in, in most of our lives in the workplace or amongst friends where if we were to... Uh, to lie or, or just not tell the truth, then we would be in a more favorable position. But a person of integrity, a person of righteousness that is blameless, he's willing to tell the truth and to, uh, in a sense, uh, vow to the truth uh, to the point that he, that he would even be, he would suffer harm or... or, or uh, his position would be less. He, he, he wouldn't get the promotion. He wouldn't uh, be uh, considered um, uh, the person that everybody wants to work with anymore. The righteous man is willing to suffer hardship for the sake of truth. This is how David answers this, this issue of who may dwell on God's holy mountain, who may sojourn him, and how one lives in their character, how one speaks in their words, how one interacts in their relationships, and fourth, how one deals, how one conducts himself in, in business transactions, how one deals with their money. And, and we like to think, and, and usually we hear this paraphrase or this misinterpretation that, that um, money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not exactly what the verse says. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Um, Jesus spoke about money a lot. He spoke about money as an indicator of where your heart is. That where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And how you spend your money is an indicator. How you give, and, and not just... In, 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 to church or to ministries, but how, to, how you give to others. Are, are you a generous person? Do you help other people out? Uh, this is an indicator of where your, your uh, heart is. And this is what David is getting at, how one deals with their money. He, the righteous man, the righteous woman, the, uh, the blameless person is not greedy. He does not put out his money at interest. And this is getting back to Old Testament law that the Jews were not to uh, charge interest to other Jews, to other Israelites. Those, they, they, they were, it's okay to go into debt, so to speak, uh, for the right things. And it's okay to give out loans and, and require that someone pay you back. 
but those closest to you, those within your family, uh, and the other fellow Israelites, they weren't to charge interest. This is what David is getting at. One who is a blameless Jew, one who does not put out his money at interest. But even as you get to Jesus' time and, and uh, during his time, and, and he uh, flips the tables over near the temple because it had, it had gotten so bad that the, the whole temple worship system, the, the whole religious system was a racket so that, that the, the, the priest wouldn't accept uh, a, an animal for sacrifice from the people, and and so then the people bringing from uh, bringing a sacrifice for the feast from far away would bring a lamb without blemish or or uh, a, a goat or a bull or whatever it may be, and they bring it up to the temple for sacrifice for their own sins, and then the priest would say, "No, that's not. It's not good enough," and be like, "Well, now what do I do?" Well, we got that covered. You can go right over there and you can buy one. And say, well, I don't have, I come from a far country and I only have the money from that country. Oh, okay, well, we got that covered as well. You go to the money changers and you can change that money so you have the right money to buy the right sacrifice that we will accept. And by the way, just like our amusement parks, everything was charged much higher. And they were making money off of worship. David points to the righteous man that he does not put out his money at interest. He follows the law. He cares about his fellow uh, Jew or his fellow family member. He's generous. Nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He cannot be bought. He can't be bought. And this, this goes back to that saying. You've probably heard it, this saying, everyone has a price. Everyone has a price. And for most of us, we'd like to think that we don't have a price, that we can't be bought. And hopefully that is true of all of us. But we also know that there are times in life in which you can be put in a situation where you can easily be bought or easily be bribed. And it, it might not be um, a, a certain sum of money. It, it might be uh, some other sort of relief uh, to, to uh, escape persecution or to escape um, a, a disaster or some sort of trial. But David is saying the righteous man he he doesn't he doesn't put out his money at interest he's generous he doesn't take a bribe against the innocent in a sense this is pointing to somewhat of a courtroom scene uh one an innocent person who's being uh falsely accused and, and maybe even being brought before um for the the judge and, and the righteous man is asked to be a witness be bought off but how he deals with his money his own money in such a way that he holds his money with a loose hand 
He understands that everything comes from God, and God has given it to him, and God can take it away from him. And he's content with that. And he uses his money to bless people, and not not primarily for himself. This is what uh, many, many passages in the New Testament speak to this. Jesus speaks to this, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Uh, we see that, that uh, scene of the widow and the, the two mites, that she gave more than everybody else. But Paul speaks this in, in, uh, as he uh, instructs Timothy concerning those who are rich, but also concerning uh, our earthly goods. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 8, he says, If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, here's a verse, for the love of money is a root of all sorts of evils. And some by aspiring to it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's, it's not a sin to be rich or to be blessed. It's what you do with your riches and your blessings. That's an indicator of what's in your heart. And this is, in a sense, what David is getting at here. He, he's, he's listing the righteous man or the, the person who may sojourn in God's tent or may approach God in worship and, and may dwell in God's presence. And he lists all these characteristics, how one lives, how one speaks, how one interacts, how one deals. And as he lists all these characteristics and the, the, the righteous person's behavior, he's really getting at his heart, the heart issue. And so he, he raises this issue and he answers this issue. And in a sense, that, that, that puts us all in a conundrum. Because if we're honest with ourselves, and, and as David writes this, and, and the Holy Spirit moving him to write this as Scripture, he is in a sense condemning all mankind. That if we're honest, no one may approach God. No one may dwell with God. But God is not just holy and righteous and just and perfect. He's also merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so David doesn't leave us there because this very last verse, he says this, which alludes to the issue being settled. He, we see the issue raised and when we see the issue answered and then finally we see the issue settled. He who does these things will never be shaken. He who does these things will never be shaken, which in a sense alludes to someone that has done these things, someone that will do these things. And as he, we've just seen that the main problem in Psalm 15 is, we, is that no one does these things. But I'd like you to turn with me to what is somewhat of a parallel passage. And it's another Psalm of David, Psalm 24. In Psalm 24, he, in a sense, almost raises the same questions, but he answers them, I think, in a better way. He says this in Psalm 24 and verse 3, Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? 
And who may rise in his holy place? He who has innocent hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to worthlessness and has not sworn deceitfully, he shall lift up a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Pay heed, O Jacob. And then he answers the question, who may ascend the mountain of Yahweh and who may rise in his holy place? Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift, up, lift yourselves up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Alluding to the king that would come, a righteous king that could go in and that would go in for us. Because as he says at the end of Psalm 15, he who does these things will never be shaken. And the issue is settled according to God's doing, that, that God has done it. And even at the end of, of Psalm 22, as, as David is writing concerning the, the, the sacrifice of uh, Jesus, he says, they will come and de will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done it. He has done it. He has lived up to the standard. And he's lived up to the standard for us, for his people. Only Jesus has done these things. Only Jesus could do these things. Only Jesus could have this perfect character, these perfect words because of his perfect heart and his perfect relationships and, and how he interacts and, and according to God's perfect law and his perfect standard. He did these things for his people. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.21, this, this sense of this great exchange that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus did this. And he did this for his people, for all those who would repent and believe upon him. As even Jesus said to his disciples, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That, that's how we can sojourn in his tent. That's how we can dwell on his holy mountain. That's how we can approach God in worship and dwell in God's presence is through Jesus and through Jesus alone. I like what even the famous hymn writer Fanny Crosby said in her hymn, Come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give Him the glory, great things He has done. To God be the glory, great things He has done. It's He who has done it. He who does these things, He settles the issue for us, for all those who would repent and believe. But not only that, not only does He do these things, has He done these things, but but. Those who believe upon him, those who have had their sins uh, paid for through his shed blood, through his broken body, that we are kept by him as well. This issue is, is settled according to God's doing, but also according to God's keeping. 
that we will never be shaken. Those who have repented and believed upon him and are found in him will never be shaken. We have been given an alien righteousness. His righteousness has been imputed to us. Jesus in his... Uh, as he's speaking to the Jews in John chapter 6, he says this, John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. He came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him to redeem a people for himself, to redeem a people zealous for good deeds, to, to, uh, to live the life that none of them can live and to die the death that they all deserve to die. And he calls to everyone, he calls to, uh, to his people, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest because he has obeyed the law for us. One of the first uh, verses I memorized as a new believer and uh, there's many times when I struggled with assurance as a new believer and I would quote this verse to myself over and over and over again and I still go to it now and then Romans 8 1 therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus there's there's no condemnation because he bore that condemnation for those who are in him he, he took God's wrath upon him himself bearing our guilt, our shame, our sin. And he bore it all for all those who would repent and believe upon him, who are found in him. And not only did he bear that condemnation for us, but he gave us uh, his perfect righteous life was credited to our account by faith. As Paul goes on in Romans 8 and he says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. He did it, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we often say, and, and you've heard it said, before and um, maybe in a different context. You want the good news first or the bad news? Most of us pick the bad news and then we hear the good news first, but the, the gospel starts with the bad news. We, we got to hear the bad news before we hear the good news. And that's where David starts with the bad news, with this issue that that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and we are broken and this world is broken and yet somehow even as I quoted from that song, many people know that inherently but they don't go to the place where they can be fixed and find healing and restoration and reconciliation. And so the issue is 
that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we need to understand that issue if you are outside of Christ, that you are born into this world. As David even said, in sin did my mother conceive me. We don't naturally seek after God or obey God, but God seeks sinners and he calls to them to repent and believe upon him, to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. And if we have come to him and we know him, then we rest in him because he has done what we could not do. And because he has done it, we who are in him will never be shaken. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm and many others like them. It's, it's such, a, in a sense, a, a breath of fresh air to go to places where, in your word, where we don't expect to see the gospel clearly uh, proclaimed. And many of us, we think of the Old Testament as um, the law and history. But even as we go back, we see um, what would be revealed to us later on in this gospel of salvation. And you have sent your son to live a life that none of us could live and to die the death that we all deserve to die. And by his wounds, we are healed. Help us to rest in that, to hope in that, to trust in that, and to proclaim it. And for those here who do not know you, Lord, please do a work in their hearts and minds and draw them to yourself that they may know you and know this great salvation. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.